Welcome, everyone. Welcome to another edition of Enabling Digital with Systems Plus podcast series. Today, we're going to focus on women in tech, and therefore, it gives me immense pleasure to welcome Dr. Pervez Khan. She's the Director General and CEO of SMR. Uh, Dr. Khan is an insight leader with a strong track record of transforming research functions into insight powerhouses. With a strong passion for bringing data to life, delivering high-quality outputs, driving up team performance and engaging with stakeholders, she's able to effectively create actionable insights needed to drive business growth for the world's leading companies. Dr. Dr. Khan, thank you so much for joining us. It's great to have you here. Thank you, it's a real pleasure. Fantastic, so let's dive right into it. Um, sure. I read about your journey of how you grew up in a poor immigrant community in the UK, mm-hmm. with, with, with very, uh, you know, uh, no major scope uh, for a strong career, et cetera. But you you sort of got, gotten through that, you've broken the glass ceiling, et cetera. So tell us a little bit about your journey. And, and also, you know, I, I found, you know, while I was reading a little bit more about you and, and, and uh, going through some of your uh, other recordings, et cetera, you know, um, you know, you always had this passion for analyzing and interpreting data and that's sort of mm. what got you to where you are. So I just le- love to yeah. learn more about that and, and our listeners would love to sort of hear more about that, especially sure. the women who are trying to make, you know, uh, trying to break through that glass ceiling. Absolutely. I mean, the qualities that you need in my profession, which is all about really analyzing data, is a deep curiosity. You know, you need to be so inquisitive. And I've always had that as a child. I was always curious about everything, um, about how the world worked, how people worked. And uh, my original passion was, of course, to become a lawyer, if you have read my uh, background. And uh, But, you know, poor kids like me just didn't do law. I mean, we didn't have the, the privilege of a middle-class family and the resources to go and study law. But uh, I had this sort of fire in my belly always that I wanted to do something really purposeful in my life and uh, so contrary to expectations I did go and do really well in high school and I did really well with my qualifications and I then went on to university and I got a grant from the government so which paid for my my university my tuition my um, living expenses and then I managed to be fortunate enough to get a PhD and uh, really study human behavior in more detail. I mean, that was uh, something that really drove me to try and understand why people behave the the way they did. In that context, it was all about political decision-making, you know, like Mm -hmm. I was looking at the the creation of the European Union back in the 1990s and how the issues of national sovereignty played out in discourse and uh, how nationalism um, was almost being overtaken by very xenophobic and almost racist type of language around the time, um, which interestingly is is always topical, isn't it? There's always yeah. issues around refugees and immigrants and how they're coming over and being. And recently in the UK, we've had some awful language about being swamped by an influx of mm-hmm. refugees, which is complete and utter rubbish. Um, but it's very damaging, you know, type of narrative. Right. Well, anyway, to cut the story short, I ended up um, going to work for a number of big brands. And I've always, always seen it, had a deep fascination with technology. Uh, technology, at the end of the day, is responsible for really accelerating the pace of change in our lives. And it touches 
every aspect of our lives, the way we work, the way we live, the way we socialize, it's quite remarkable. And in my own industry, data, research, insights, you know, we, we look at market and customer research and data analytics, and we use that to help businesses better understand their consumers and their would-be um, customers. Mm -hmm. We've really seen a radical transformation just over the last decade in how we gather, store, and analyze data and how we better understand customer experiences, behaviors and actions. And the key driver of that has been data processing technologies and data text and data web mining technologies, which of course continue to advance with artificial intelligence based engines and cloud computing. And you know, I'd be remiss not to talk about the power of generative and conversational AI tools like ChatGPT, which everybody is talking about right now. I mean, for our industry, it's a real game changer. Right. Now, whilst I'm in awe of these technologies um, and I really appreciate the power they provide and how it can really help us streamline processes and um, really get to uh, understand customers in a more agile and much faster speed, there's a big but, you know, and that is I've always, I've also, sorry, seen how the value that we can leverage from these amazing technologies, you know, can be really limited. If we don't also apply on the enormous effort that's needed to work on the data itself. Yeah, because data can't speak for itself. And uh, I, what I've experienced in my sort of last decade, particularly, is that we've become really great at mining data. And we've, you know, we use tons of metrics, we have fabulous dashboards, but we've actually got poorer at analyzing what all of that data means. And I always say to people, the challenge is, isn't being data driven. The challenge is being insight driven because with insight, you have to interpret that data in a really meaningful way. You kind of need to speak for the facts. And that means you have to, you know, have a business head. You need to apply that business acumen and wrap up that understanding of that data into commercially framed options and recommendations to help your company grow, your stakeholder grow if you're on the agency side. Now, that's the tough part. And I think that's where professionals like me come into play. You know, we're like data translators. We right. help companies really understand their data better. And we use technology as an enabler but technology itself can't replace that need for human judgment and, and uh, human interpretation. Oh, absolutely. And, and you're absolutely right. And, and you touched on uh, ChatGPT and I, and I know you have done multiple talks around the metaverse. Um, mm. you know, this is now the bleeding, bleeding edge of uh, technology. Um, in your opinion, what are sort of the parallels that you can draw uh, in terms of what we saw you know about 20 years ago and how technology was changing and the whole dot-com mm -hmm. bubble and to moving into what we are seeing today between the chat GBT and the metaverse uh, in, in terms of how that's transforming the tech industry mm -hmm. and so what role the whole data aspect has to play into that because as you said data on its own can't speak for itself um, but and somebody needs yeah. to be able to explain it yeah uh, but 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 these new sort of ways of the future, you know, it, it's becoming more and more difficult to figure out who's speaking. 
Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Well, there, there are a couple of things to unravel here. Um, first of all, there's the, um, the regulatory um, sort of framework. I mean, right. we, we want ethical, responsible technologies um, and we, we need regulation to make sure that's happening, that consumers are not being exploited in any way and that data isn't being gated in a way that only the big business has access to the data and others are somehow disenfranchised or marginalized because they don't have access. So, you know, and that reduces competitivity, for example. So we need to create these level playing fields. Now that's an interesting story about data, um, regulation, sorry, because things like GDPR was really creative for filing cabinets. You know, it's, it wasn't really designed for the internet and it certainly wasn't designed for social media. And right. it's always been on the back foot. Regulation has always been on the back foot, um, Sulek. And it, it can't keep up with the pace of change. You know, these technologies, ChatGBT, I mean, what? I mean, that took like six months to produce. Right. Technology is always gonna, um, you know, outrun, you know, the regulation. So this is where we need to ensure that there's an element of self-regulation in the industry. We need um, developers, creators to create some kind of code of ethics themselves that they're adhering to um, so that we can trust them, that we can trust their intent. And we can also trust the veracity of the data they're using to train their large language models. Um, so that trust piece is a, is a huge issue right now. Mm -hmm. um, I would love it to be regulated, for example, because I represent SMR, we're an industry association, of course. We, we want good regulation, but we don't want regulation to stifle innovation either. Right. So it's striking that balance, and that's not easy. So maybe self-regulation is the way to go. But some people will argue that that won't be enough um, because many companies out there will be looking to make a profit and that's going to be their main driver. So there's a conversation to be had about regulation. The, the other conversation to be had is every time there's a new AI application out there, there is a conversation about whether it's going to displace jobs. Right. We've been here many times before. You know, is automation going to replace jobs. And in many ways it has. I mean, in many ways, these new enterprise level data systems mean that we don't need as many business intelligence analysts, for example. Mm -hmm. We can now automate that. You know, we, right. we can simply buy an enterprise solution, can do that work for us. Likewise, with ChatGBT, given that it can create great content and do a lot of that discovery research, you can even do segmentation for you. Um, it can help you develop a brand strategy. I mean, it's right, endless, yeah. the things it can do. It is inevitably going to have an impact on the creative industry, the, um, the data analytics industry, the market and consumer research industry. Inevitably, Sunak, it's going to happen. Now, some people predict within 10 years, we're going to see a 50% reduction in the workforce Others will go so far to say it's going to happen within five years. And that's a conversation that industry bodies like SMR need to have. We need to really understand the implications on our jobs. It could be 
that it creates new types of jobs that right. we now have the ability to invest more time on the creative aspects of our discipline rather than doing all the sort of boring you know sort of desktop research which we can get an AI bot to do we can focus more on well what is this research telling me how can I help my client um, get that competitive advantage because now I'm freed up I have more time to think about um, the analysis side of the, the the data rather than focusing on just curating all that information because that takes time in itself so so these are some of the really um, complex really difficult challenging issues that we're facing right now right and of course there's there's no clear answer but um if you, if you look at any sort of a trend historical trend usually you know technology or any in, in, innovation uh, displaces something but it creates typically it creates more jobs or more opportunity etc is that's that's sort of how it's been yeah or, or it, it creates new types of jobs I and mean, the issue right, right, is, exactly. is is reskilling or upskilling people who have been um displaced into mm -hmm. these new jobs and whether right. that's easy you know because otherwise that's where you get those disparities in merchant society um, where those people simply cannot find new roles that they can do absolutely um speaking of smr actually uh mm -hmm. i'd love to understand a little bit about um how you sort of got there and the challenges you face as a woman uh, mm. of, of uh, you know how sort of you know taking on that role itself yeah yeah sure absolutely well, I mean, it's actually mm, nearly a year. I mean, it'll be a year in July that I've been at the helm of SMR. And it's been, look, a fast learning curve. I'm not going to lie. I, um, you know, it's uh, been one of those sort of situations in life. It's trial and error. You know, you sort of been thrown into the deep end. But it was a challenge that I was very much willing to take. Um, now we don't we don't do research. We we represent the industry, so we represent the companies and the professionals that make up the industry. Um, right. We have something like seven hundred and fifty uh, companies, um, twelve thousand um, subscribed members. But when we add up all the people who we're engaging with on a regular basis, we're talking about you know forty thousand or more Whoa. professionals, wow. and we represent an industry worth a hundred and twenty billion. I mean, it's a it's a big industry and it's growing exponentially. And right. we provide things like training, events, professional networking um, for our for our members. Now, what I've been doing since I've been here is I've really been harnessing technology to build a really operationally resilient SMR. You know, I think it's really critical that mm -hmm. we strengthen our digital backbone so that we are ourselves able to be more nimble, more efficient, more agile. Um, and I've done that by, you know, using a lot of new technologies and uh, working with new providers in the, um, the field to help us develop our own tech stack. You know, we've just, I've just been recently looking at our CRM system, making sure that we're really capturing data across all our customer touch points. And the other thing I really want to do, um, Sinek, is look at all these new emerging disciplines in our industry. We're now increasingly seeing more data scientists who need to learn storytelling skills, who need to be right. able to do great um, visualization of all of that data 
and who need to create a narrative that their stakeholders really understand. And they're looking for training. They're looking for a platform that's going to help them do that. And that's the kind of thing that SMR does. So we certainly want to, um, it, you know, embrace these new uh verticals that we, we describe them as new verticals that are sort of emerging in our sector because we're no longer that traditional market research space we were 75 years ago when we first launched. You know, these days, it's all about MarTech, so we call that marketing technology. It's yes. all about research tech, um, yeah. and you know, it's all about data as a service. Um, so we're really working hard, or at least I'm working really hard to bring these new companies into the SMR family. And I'm really wanting to also showcase how data and data analytics is helping to solve humanitarian issues around the world, like poverty, health, human rights, climate change, education. You know, if you take digital skills, for example, in a country like Kenya, where we've recently been working on, and we've got a a leadership summit coming up in July is we are looking how how data can be used to really flag the disparities we're seeing in digital skills between men and women and, and girls. Uh, and Kenya, particularly Nairobi, is Savannah, you know, Silicon, uh, their Silicon ver version of, uh, of uh, you know, the tech hubs, you know, Nairobi is really growing but it has an acute shortage of digital skills like cybersecurity, for example, and women are getting left behind. And so we're really looking at uh, drawing on our profession to map the skill needs of today and the future in a country like Kenya. And we're sort of working with data and uh, research companies there to showcase the fantastic work they're doing. Um, so, so those are some of the initiatives I'm involved in. But one thing I should add is no leader is an island. You know, you, you need a team. You need a, a smart team who've got the abilities mm -hmm. to support you, but also who have the same desires and the same drive as you. You know, you, you need that team. So one of the things I've been really doing is, you know, getting that team on board and developing those mutual goals and making sure that they're on the same journey with me and taking ownership for those goals and that they have the tools and resources to set them up for success. Um, and that's been a key focus of, of mine as well. That's fantastic. Uh, also, I'm glad you brought up the whole gender diversity issues and, and the gaps fundamentally mm. in, 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 well, in Nairobi you were talking, but I know you've seen things globally do you see the gap, uh, sort of uh, gap in tech, especially wider uh, mm. developing countries, or is it you see across the board? Uh, and and sort of what are your thoughts on how to address them? How how can companies yeah. address them? Because I'll tell you where I'm coming from. It's not only about I can understand the cultural aspects, but I personally I think women are just much more efficient in work, right? <laughs> they, they just have so much more. Yeah, and that's bad. Backed up by research, you're absolutely right. I mean, I so how, do I, how do I convince more women to come into the workforce <laughs> and, and, and get there, right? Because I'm telling you, yeah, I, this is yeah. one of the biggest uh, gaps that I see, saying that yeah. women have yeah. managed so many things, no. yet they're not getting the opportunities. No, that's that's right. And 
The statistics uh, are really quite somber and uh, very sobering, unfortunately. I can talk more authoritatively about the EU because that's kind of where I'm based. I mean, ISMR is in Amsterdam. Um, and I'll share with you some statistics um, which come from Eurostat, which is a very authoritative source. It collects all sorts of statistics across a number of metrics. But in the European Union, only 22% of tech roles are occupied by women. Wow. Only 22, only a fifth. I mean, that's appalling. And in yeah. the Netherlands, where I'm based, it's actually only 18%. Um, really? Yeah. And I mean, in the UK, it's about 20%. Now, we look at the figures globally, and um, I got some figures from the UN, which show that 25% of women in technology firms are women. 25% globally. And of AI professionals, again, it's only about a fifth are women globally. Um, and then we look at leadership and the statistics get even more depressing, unfortunately. Right. If we look at global statistics across tech companies, um, only 17% of women are in leadership roles. So that so something's not right there. Um, and then I thought, well, let's take a deep dive into specific roles that women are doing mm -hmm. in tech. And I found some stats again in the European context. And again, it just happens to be we have more data for Europe than we do globally. Can, you can imagine just how difficult it is to map this across many thousands and thousands of companies. But in the EU, they're pretty good at doing that. And you find that even within that 22% I mentioned earlier of women in tech roles, when we look at job roles, what you find is that women are more heavily concentrated in things like product design and management. So, for example, 46% of um, women, 40% uh, 46% of roles in product design and management are women, 54% are men. And then you look at data engineering and data science, there you find that 30% are women, 70% are men, so still more men, but you find more women in those particular job roles. But then you look at things like cloud engineering, and there only eight to 10% are women. And now these are the ones that are the high end, highly specialized, highly paid roles, only eight to 10% are women. Now that, that's not right, something's not right there. And uh, you know, a lot of research shows that not only do we need to invest in women to plug acute skill gaps um, in tech, because companies are really struggling to fill these job roles and particularly in Europe, because of course you'll, you'll know be, being based in India and the US where having to source a lot of these uh, skill sets from overseas. Um, but the other thing to say is it is actually economically advantageous for companies and economies to have more women. Mm -hmm. More women in leadership equals better profit. I mean, you know, the research shows this. I'm not just making this up. There's plenty of research to show this. And one example of research is a study that's done by Credit Suisse where they do this survey and they do this every few years. The last one was in 2019. Um, where they surveyed 30,000 senior executives across 3,000 companies. Um, and that was across 56 companies. So it was a big study um, to look at women um, in senior leadership. 
And what it found is generally about 17% of these companies had women in senior management positions. And then it looked at the economic um, growth of these companies and it tracked them across a number of financial metrics like share price, um, EBITDA, uh, return on capital, and it tracked these businesses over time. And it found um, a really significant thing, which it describes as this sort of uh, premium, this sort of diversity premium, they describe it as a diversity premium, is okay. that companies that had, really interesting, companies that had 30% or more women in senior management outperformed those that had fewer. Wow. And it seemed to be that you had to get at least 30% for that company to really see this significant financial difference. Companies that had fewer than that, particularly companies that had only 10% or less, were, were worse off financially. You know, their profit um, margins, their um, their share price, all would be going down over the, 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 the period in which this study was done, which is fascinating, absolutely fascinating. So although we can't ever prove a causal relationship, I think there is a strong correlation of, you know, of, of uh, you know, this, this economic imperative. Why might that be? Why might companies do better financially having more women? I think it just goes back to this issue around diversity. We need to bring in diversity of views in decision-making. And it's not just women, we need to bring diversity of views from all sorts of other areas, you know, other underrepresented groups like marginalized ethnic minorities, for example. Mm -hmm. But women, I think perhaps because they've experienced um, greater hardship. This is my theory anyway, that they've experienced greater hardship in rising to senior leadership is that they're more pragmatic and I think they're more grounded and, and that is important for companies when they're looking to grow you know that sort of pragmatism is really important when you're making really serious decisions really tough decisions about restructuring or making very tough decisions about you know mergers and acquisitions I think women from that experience that they bring um provide something quite different that perhaps uh, men don't because they've not had the same experiences that women have. That, that's my theory anyway. And uh, you just don't take my word for it. McKinsey did a study, again, in, in looking at Europe, and it found that uh, if we doubled the share of women in the tech workforce just by 2027, so not long, I mean, you know, just a few, five years or so away, we could increase GDP from the current tech contribution of 260 billion euros to 600 wow. billion euros. Yeah, I mean, isn't that amazing? I mean, that's a study by McKinsey and I think that's a pretty authoritative source. So there are a lot of really good reasons why we should be encouraging more women, not just because it's the right moral thing to do, but it makes financial sense as well. Right. So. So do you have sort of any thoughts, tips, et cetera, uh, that organizations can sort of enact to encourage um, mm. more women uh, in, in the tech space and in, in the cloud space, for example, or in, or in more niche areas? Uh, I mean, I'm, I'm sure you've seen it all, but, but what are sort of, what are the easy things that organizations can, can do um, to just encourage um, 
women, or or maybe it's an uh, it's an organizational thing where uh, the leadership needs to look at things first. I mean, love to get your thoughts on that. Mm. Yeah, I mean, if it was easy, we would have solved this problem, right? <laughs> I mean, the fact that we're still talking about this now is quite astonishing, given that uh, you know we've had women's rights for such a long time, and most countries have really good legislation to mm -hmm. enforce uh, equality in the workplace. You know, why are we still talking about it? There are a lot of different things. Um, where do we start? Well, one of the frustrations that women, you know, have in very male-dominated environments is they just feel that they're not being taken as seriously and they're not heard and they're not seen. And sometimes, you know, so look, it feels like no matter how hard you work, you end up getting passed over for promotion. You right. know, you find your peer, your male peers are earning more than you do. And it almost feels like no matter what you do, you're still going to get criticised in some way or, or the other. And again, research backs this up. And um, the way that I've tackled that on a very personal level is I've just had to work much harder. I mean, I've always felt like I've had to work three times as hard as my male peers to get where I am. And, and obviously that takes a strain on one particularly your family life, but that is what us women have to do. We have to work a lot harder. Right. We have to work really hard to be visible. You know, we have to show up <laughs> in all the right places and we have to make the connections with the right people. And that's bloody hard work. It really right. is, but it is necessary. And, and that's what we have to do when companies are not making it easy for women. You know, companies do need to make you know they need to foster these more enabling environments that women can flourish and, and there are a lot of different things that they need to do for that to happen um we can talk about those very specific things if you like is that is that what you're alluding to would you like me to talk about some very specific things that companies oh, can absolutely. Do? i would love to get some specific examples if you mm. have it um i mean i, I know in in general there's a lot of things that need to be done, but I think um, you know, if you have to chip away one thing at a time, yeah. you know, what, what, what could some of those things be? Well, first of all, let, let me say, and I, I say this always, um, this isn't a problem that women created, you know, that their lack of diversity isn't because women have a problem. It's nothing to do with women. It, it's, the, it's the processes, it's the culture, it's the systemic, you know, uh, problems that we experience in society more broadly. I think I should be really clear because there's always a risk that somehow we bring this down to identity politics. You know, it's all about women. We need to make women more confident. We need to give women mentorship programs, you know, and then they will rise and that's not enough. But these things still are need needed. So let's deal with the tactical things that we can do the practical things that we can still do in the workplace. Um, we absolutely need mentoring and sponsorship, you know, even though sometimes that kind of feels tokenistic, it's still, it is still a requirement. Mm -hmm. But we need, we need the leadership to really champion it. They, they need to really be the sponsors of these initiatives and take time to be uh, the mentors and you know not pass the buck to somebody else to do and I think you know they need to model the kind of behaviors um, 
that encourage women so they need to be vulnerable you know they need to be open about failures that they've made they need to be honest about how tough leadership is um, and they need to actively open doors for women um, so mentoring and sponsorship is still really important and I think sponsorship for men is particularly important for women we need to have more male allies given that men already in positions of power in the workplace right. they need to help us rise there's always things like implicit bias training sure these things are helpful but not as a one-off you know I really find it so frustrating when a company just does this like one day or two day workshop where all the leadership go on diversity training as though that's going to solve the problem right. I mean you know I mean how tokenistic can you get right um these things have to be embedded in everyday behaviors we need to always be thinking about um being self-aware about things you know when we're judging a person we need to think like well what will we behave the same way if that person was a man mm -hmm. we're treating this person differently because they're a woman we need to always be challenging our assumptions constantly and that kind of training needs to be regular you know it's not a one-off thing it needs to be provided all the all the time and just having more women role models is really important there is like this um aphorism that we we often use don't we you cannot be what you cannot see that's so true I think representation really matters so simply champion women and and making them visible in your organization really having their back and supporting mm -hmm. them women down the ranks when they see that it really inspires them if they can see their female leaders being promoted and re being supported then it gives them hope that they they can have that for themselves as well but it right. isn't an instant fix um right. know, these things take a lot of time and i think it really goes back to leadership and leadership education i, I think uh companies need to really look at their their values first of all uh, mm -hmm. and be really brave and bold and if they say that they believe in diversity equity and inclusion that they really mean it and they can prove it it's no point Sunak having a wonderful value statement on your website right. <laughs> you know this really great corporate mission and vision and value statement and then you don't actually behave in that way I think companies that do that need to be called out but you know they need to be looking at their hiring strategies right. you, you know they need to be having you know diversity on their hiring panels they need to be actively going and looking for women and underprivileged um, communities and actively uh, engaging with schools for example to uh, develop that kind of uh, outreach but also to provide the work experience and the mentorship for these future, the future talent pipeline, you know, these future talent leaders uh, and actively work with universities and colleges. And the other thing, of course, is flexible working. I mean, I think more companies are now very accustomed to that given the pandemic. But doesn't it frustrate you? It certainly frustrates me that it took a pandemic <laughs> for us to realise that actual flex flexible working is really important and that work-life balance is really important. And actually, flexible working can be as productive if not more productive for your workplace so 
all all these things these things are important there's not just you know one tactic it's right. it's the you know it's it's the sum of all these parts that can really drive meaningful change i couldn't agree with you more and i think um sort of as you indicated it really is a top-down approach that one needs mm. to take as an organization um so no you're absolutely right um i do want to touch on one more topic slash point before i let you go um how do you sort of overcome culture and what i mean by culture is i mean the the the, the macro culture so I'll, I'll give you an example right um you know we do a lot of work with uh with, with uh, sort of schools and 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 the whole um you know trying to empower the girl child etc all, all that kind of stuff and you know i was uh i was sort of mentoring a couple of girls um you know in in one of the um uh, sort of the municipal schools and there was this one girl who she was super bright uh you know um and 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 you know you could you could tell that she could have a great future etc um and you know i remember we were working on um how to help her open up a bank account uh and and then you know uh, right right you know it was a it was an english thing uh and, and she, uh, she you know she figured out how to do it etc she even went and got the account open but when i went sort of a week later or two weeks later after that she wasn't there anymore so i find mm -hmm. out what happened mm -hmm. and she had been called back to her village because she was 14 and uh, she's a marriageable mm -hmm. age, mar marriageable age and she's yeah. happy and that was the end of that and i'm wow. like wow like yeah. wow i mean we just wasted something that was that you could tell could have become something so yeah. how, how do we how do we you know i know it's i know it's a very very yeah. rhetorical question but how do we overcome culture yeah, yeah, no, it, it is. And uh, it's not a a question that I can answer in, in a few minutes. I mean, this is a discourse in its own right. Yeah, so yes, that's um, <laughs> but, but you're absolutely right. And it does obviously differ from society to society, but there are some common uh, patterns that we see. One is that there are these drop-offs um, that we see within a women's a woman's career trajectory in tech, and it's, and it's possibly true in, in other industries, but particularly in tech. Mm -hmm. And the first drop off that we see is, is in those very, very early years, like this, this young 14 year old you mentioned, but younger, back at school, you know, we just don't get girls excited about computer science and maths, you know, but we're just not encouraging girls to get into STEM in um at school at that very very early age and what happens is it becomes this negative self-fulfilling prophecy right. because we don't actively encourage girls they then don't show any interest they don't then show any interest we then think we're not going to actively encourage them what's the point right um, and so we then focus on the boys because they're the ones that are showing active interest in computer science and we think well they they should go on to high, you know, to college and study this and, and develop a career in it. So how do we how do we deal with that? And that is really all about making maths um, and uh, tech fun at a really, really early age and having things like coding clubs. And I'm really so delighted to see so many of these coding clubs spring up all over the place these days and, uh, you know, actively encourage girls to get involved in them and dispel this idea that girls are not interested 
in these types of subjects across Europe, and I'm sure this is global, girls actually outperform boys in things like maths and pure sciences in school, you know, up to the age of uh, 15, 16, they actually outperform boys. But then boys then accelerate and then go on to develop competencies and careers in this area that and women don't. So that's that's really um, fascinating and, and troubling at the same time. So that really early age is really important. And that's not the girls, it's about the teachers, it's about their parents, it's about the community, their uncles and aunts, everybody needs to take responsibility in actively encouraging girls in these areas. The, the, the second drop-off that we see is in at university stage, mm -hmm. which is really, really interesting and again, really troubling. And again, I can only use the European example because we, we, have, we simply have more research in this area. But what we find is, and this is really troubling, of the women that go on to do STEM, let's say they're doing like economics um, or they do physics. Of those women, and 56% of STEM graduates, you know, are, are, are actually women, but of those, only like 23% actually then go on to have a career in tech. Really? I mean, yeah. Why is that happening? It doesn't make sense. Right. It doesn't make sense. Um, so we've got to understand, like, something is then putting those young women off actually pursuing a right. career in tech. Right. So this is where the tech companies have a real responsibility to go into the colleges, to go into the universities and provide work experience, for example, to encourage these young women to come into their workplace and like do office tours, meet the women in their workplace so that they feel inspired by these women and uh, feel like, yeah, maybe I should go into tech. Something is putting them off. What is that? Maybe they feel it's not for them and something makes them change their mind. So that's another drop off point. And then the other drop off point is actually once women are in tech. And again, some really worrying statistics um, in the UK. And this is really troubling. 50% of young women under the age of 35, you know, leave, leave their tech job by the time they get to 35. 35, 50% um, leave by the time they get to 35. I mean, that, that's just astonishing. Is. What is putting them off? What is putting them off? Well, they asked them, what is putting them putting you off? And they told us, they told us, you know, what's putting them off is often they don't feel supported in, in the tech roles. They feel there's a very macho culture. It's often not very flexible. Um, and we have heard about the rise of the so-called bro and frat boy culture emerge more in the tech space recently, you know, more in the sort of startup space, I would say, mm -hmm. rather in the established um, tech, big tech companies, but maybe it's there as well. And I'm sure you're aware of some of those high profile cases of sexual harassment mm -hmm. that has hit the headlines recently. But women are not feeling supported and I spoke to a young woman recently who joined a very tech analytics business um, and she said you know I go into work and it's full of gaming consoles and it's everybody goes to the bar after work 
but I've got a young family I need to support. Right. I can't go to the bar after work. I have to go home and pick up my kids and make their dinner, you know, and I don't want to be playing game consoles when I'm at work. I've got a serious job to do. And it almost feels like she feels she needs to be the adult in the room. And she's almost feeling like she's taken on this mothering type of persona, right. which she doesn't want to do <laughs> because you know, that's not her job to be right. the mother to these, you know, to these young men that she finds quite obnoxious. So something is happening that is really putting women off. So we really need to look at that soon. I certainly don't have the answers. Um, but at the same time, I don't want to leave feeling pessimistic about the future. I want to leave feeling hopeful. And because I'm a kind of, you know, um, hopeful kind of person, I, I always look at the bright side of life. And I actually do think things are changing. I think, first of all, women are calling things out. I think women are taking ownership for things a lot more. They're saying, look, I want to grow in my career. Can you help me? And they're actively seeking out practical things that they can do, like mentorship, like sponsorship, which is actually quite different to when I started my career, where you would never do something like that. That would be a sign of weakness. Right. You went to your senior leaders and you said, hey, I'm really struggling. I, I, I need a bit of help. I need a bit of mentoring. I think people would have looked down on you like, well, she's obviously not smart enough. She's not capable enough. I think now women are feeling confident enough to say, I need help and I need your support. You can really help me to rise. Will you help me to rise? And they're right. actually going out and asking their leaders for help. And I, I think that's a really positive thing. And I encourage more women to be brave and to do that because that I think will will really accelerate change. Awesome, awesome. Fascinating. Thank you so much. I mean, I can You're very welcome. I can easily talk for another hour or two, probably days. But uh, <laughs> well, it's a complex and challenging topic, and I, yeah. I think it warrants a lot more debate. Oh, so most certainly. And I think um I, I think uh, uh women like you have made immense strides. And I know it's just you know in the grand scheme of things it may feel like just a drop in the bucket, but um, you know, you're definitely a role model and definitely you. people, someone to look up to. And, and I will, I would definitely encourage not only our women listener, but the listeners, but all our listeners to really, uh, follow, uh, Dr. Khan and, and really just look at her journey and, and sort of what she's achieved and, and, and it's, it's something, something to aspire to. So thank, thank you. Thank, thank you. you. Yeah. Do follow me on LinkedIn. And I like, I have a book coming out, uh, Pearson business books on women in leadership, how women rise. And, you know, and it does look at some of these issues in terms of the things that are still holding back and that really the organizational things that we need to do to support women. And just remember that it's not women's fault. They're not the problem here. It's the system and we need to fix that system. Yeah. Anyway, delighted to speak. Thank you so much. It's been Thank a real pleasure. So Bye. Bye. Have a great day. Thank you. Thanks everyone for joining. And until next time. Take care.